Alright, it's Wednesday, May 23rd. Um, a little after, not about 9.30, sun's down, but it's still warm out. And it kind of warmed it. Today I got a conversation that I just recorded with uh, this guy Nicholas, who I've known by face and brief interactions around West Philly for a while now, dating back actually to last time. So last time I lived in West Philly, like three years ago, I'd always see Nicholas around at coffee shops in West Philly and whatnot. And then since being back since November of 2016, although I go to coffee shops way less frequently for whatever reason, probably financial, but whatever, um, I still see Nicholas all around. And basically a couple weeks ago, maybe a week ago, I ran into him at um, a, a coffee shop and he was like, had like 15 or 20 pages left in Don Quixote. And um, that was a book that I read. I was just almost exclusively reading for, a, so pretty much the beginning, the, the whole summer into the fall of 2016, while I was not stationary, I was traveling around and doing different types of work in Northern California. That was the one book that I kept reading because I kind of didn't feel like I could read. I'd only have a little bit of time. I'd you know working all day, have a little bit of time at the end of the day before I go to sleep. So I was just I was just kind of sitting with that book for a long time, and then um, ended up finishing the first half because it's two parts, and kind of going away from it for a while, and then um, probably uh, last year, 2016, 17. I ended up reading the second half and it's just so rare to just run into somebody and we started talking about it a little bit and I was just thinking like man I hope I run into him again because I want to podcast about it and you know I didn't have the recorder handy but he he was down to talk about it and we kind of started the conversation talking about Bologna a little bit she brought it up out of the blue and anyone who listens to this or yeah Bologna is just I guess it's it makes sense you know talking about um Don Quixote and Bologna would come up as sort of like the modern, whatever. We were talking about Bologna and that got me real excited and then got us recording it. And he's also, he had finished it since and he is now reading Mao 2 by Don DeLolo, which was a book I also lived through for a hot minute back in the day. So it's a good, it's a good conversation. I don't need to preface it too much. All I'll say is that I think there's sort of the way this podcast kind of kind of manifested itself sort of spoke to a self critique I have of kind of how I've been doing the podcast so far I mean I think anytime you start a podcast you kind of got to have a specific idea that feels unique and feels like it'll sustain itself and I guess with this podcast it was kind of like the idea of all those times someone recommended me a book and I just kind of brushed it off and didn't read it if I had the motivation to talk about it it would push me to read it but as I was thinking about it, you know, and kind of going through like, you know, the initial group of friends who have recommended books and talking to them about it, there does seem a little bit of an element of like a performative, like, look at me, I'm reading the, reading the books that people recommend me. Like, I don't know, it's like a little, little fake book, a little bit like, like I'm not spending all my time, you can only read so many books, I'm not spending all my time only reading books that people recommended me. So anyway, I think, I think I was sort of identifying uh, that element, that shortcoming of like how the podcast was set up, where it's like, hey, it's a little, 
it's a little bit disingenuous, like showing people like, oh, look how great I am. I'm reading the books that people recommend me. And it's just what the podcast becomes is a series of books that like don't necessarily most represent what I'm reading because they were recommending me by other people. I don't know. I just think, um, yeah, maybe just being more vocal about what I'm reading and kind of just trying to like create a a more reciprocal element. I mean, it's hard to sustain a podcast. So if it keeps going, it keeps going. But um, this conversation is pretty good though. And I was excited that we we uh, were able to do it. And it's pretty much him, Nicholas, convincing me that my, my reading of Don Quixote, rather than being completely a satire of a guy who likes going off and adventuring by himself, um, and running into all kinds of pitfalls based on a delusional idea isn't totally delusional. Wait, did I say that right? What I mean is, it's a satire, and I'm always like, my reading, <laughs> that's what God is talking the first time, my reading of it is like, maybe it's not totally a satire. Like, maybe, like, you know what I'm saying? It's lit to go out and uh, adventure, even though you know you're going to fail and you're fucked from the start. Um, but we, we talk about that, so that's kind of a driving force. Very, uh, um, it's just a good, good talking to him, so, um, yeah, here it is. Didn't matter before, why would it not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've read, uh, his two big novels. Um, right. And, you know, like, um, formally, stylistically, they're just all over the place. They go wherever they want. They're right. examples yeah. of novels that go wherever they want to go. Right. But he's so good at, at sort of showing you how to read what he's doing. You know? Yeah, because in a way that 2360 feels like a really experimental literary and it's yeah, experimental and like avant-garde almost because it doesn't feel like anything you're reading, but there's also a super high level high degree of readability to, to find those pros. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's very accessible. Unlike, unlike other big novels that I would in that category, like maybe, maybe not Don DeLoe, because I feel like of his contemporaries, he actually writes with a fair amount of clarity. Yes, I think but, he is like super clear. Like he goes yeah. for like maximum clarity. There is a density to his ideas, but I think he shows you like, he sort of, uh, goes step by step through them yeah. very clearly. Like he's going through an equation. He, he's it's big, big idea. Right. But he breaks them down really well. And he's yeah. very succinct. Yeah. Did you read Bologna recently? Um, it's been within the, like, the last five years yeah. that I read 2666. And then a couple of years ago, I read Savage Detective. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I definitely went underwater and just read Bologna. It's easy to do when you discover a voice like that. Yeah. But yeah, that's 26 years. You immerse yourself in with someone like that. Cervantes also. Mm-hmm. You think? Yeah. Well, that's I think uh, from the, some interviews that I've read with Bologna, you know, he, he's always citing Don Quixote and also Borges. Um, and what's the other guy? The Argentinian um, writer for Hopscotch. Yeah, of course. Sorry. Yeah, I just read Hopscotch recently. Those three, I think, are... He pushed me to read a lot of different stuff. Yeah, and I think, think that's what a good author will do. Yeah. Get you to read other authors. Yeah, and I think I think I started reading Don Quixote. Like, what was your impetus to start reading Don Quixote? It might have been... Um, 
Jeez. Just like one of those books. Well, if you, yeah, it's like all, it, it's, it's probably the most referenced book totally out of any authors that I read. Like, I, you know, when I'm reading an author, I always like to familiarize myself with them. Right. And then in the course of reading them and reading about them, come across their influences. And exactly. so that's the one that everyone agrees exactly. on. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, because there's like a, yeah, I think it's so good. Was it like you expected it was going to be? Because you know when you look at a classic and you're like, I got to read that classic. And yeah. Sometimes, at least for me, like sometimes I'm just like, this isn't what I want. Sure. But with Dr. Yonke, it's so anecdotal in a way, almost like, is that his uh, 2016 is almost? Right. Oh, it's yeah. like a little story mm-hmm. and someone tells a story right. for a little while. Right. And then like, I don't know. And I love uh, that, that format of... A, a novel that's just a lot of people talking and telling exactly. stories. That's what I always... Even though it, ha- it but it really has momentum. You know, right. It doesn't stall. Right. And why, you know, there's the tempt- there, there's the, uh, that can, ha- that can be a problem sometimes. If you get too far away into these nestings of stories, um, if the stories themselves aren't compelling enough, you get a little fatigued with them. Exactly. Or with that's, if you have no, if you have no other, like connection, yeah, desire to understand the teller, right, right, the teller of the story, yeah, of the story. Um, I feel like that's what I, that's what made me wonder to keep reading Bologna for. When I was but what Bologna. one thing that um, I really enjoyed about Bologna is that I think he got just this um, ecstasy of telling good story, yeah, you know, and so that's what a lot of his his writing is, and. It's like you, you're sitting across from this expert raconteur, and yet they can do many voices. You know, they can have many storytellers inside them, and they're just letting them go. And it's just, and you're never concerned about well, where is this going because you're just enjoying every moment of the story. Like a guy who just like you would tell a story. Right. Right. Exactly. This thing happened. Uh huh. So you know, which is so, was I think that's what's most refreshing about it. Where I was at a place where I was like really breaking down storytelling mm-hmm. and like trying to make it really technical and yeah. understand it on a technical level. And there's a satisfaction in reading like a really well crafted short story. Absolutely. But like when I was reading Bologna, there is that sense of like you can do anything. Or if, when I was, if I was trying to work on something and I was stuck, I'd just be like, tell, I mean, this is a classic thing mm-hmm. people say, like, right? But you just like, have someone tell somebody else. Right. <laughs> you're yeah, like rolling. Whenever you, you get rolling. in trouble, yeah. that will save you. Yeah, which is super relevant. Huh? Just get someone talking and telling an anecdote. Yeah. Did, what did you think of the end of, of Don Quixote? Where... Or I don't know. Like, I thought it was... I kind of caught you when you were, like, yeah, like, maybe 50 pages. Getting close, yeah. And, but I thought it was wonderful how he wrapped it up because not only did he, for his own sake, like, definitively kill off Don Quixote. Right. And he also had him uh, recant, which I thought was interesting. Like, he... Uh, he, he had this moment of revelation, and I wasn't—you you, know—you're not sure. What was his moment? Right? Well, he, so giving up, giving up the dream. Right. So he he uh, he gets sick. They put him to bed. He wakes up and he says, or he has clarity again. And he says, "I would, you know, I realize now that I've been so foolish, and I've been so misled by these books of chivalry, and it's wrought all this damage and destruction. I apologize to all of you." For, for bringing you into this madness with me. Right. And he goes and, like, sort of, uh, he tries to recompense everyone in right. a different way. But everyone, at that point, everyone is really enjoying 
yeah. this, his madness because he's got this reputation right. and everyone wherever he goes everyone sort of enjoys play acting along with Don Quixote it brings you know I forget at some point someone says that Don Quixote um, can he can eliminate uh, despair <laughs> you know and, and so you see that in the first half it's pretty crazy. And it just leads to brutality and like just getting struck. San- Sancho, Sancho taken out. And yeah, <laughs> but in the second half, people seem to be enjoying it more no, because people understand more like what's going on. Right, that was an interesting meta element in the second half. I read the first half uh, while I was traveling around, and then I stopped for a while. And then the second half, and the fact that in the real life publication. Right. Of the book, the second, the first half had already been out, and in fact, right. someone had written a fake right. second half. And I like how he and makes that a big part of the yeah, second. Yeah, that's included in the second half. Yeah, and like, oh, you're the guy in that one story, and then he's like, no, that was a fake uh-huh. story. Right, <laughs> right. It was kind and of he's weird. having to grapple with this false fame that he yeah, has. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. that was re- really interesting. That's another thing I think that makes it so modern. So reading it now, it doesn't, it doesn't at any moment seem like. You know, a book that was written several hundred years ago. Right. It, all, all its language and its, its attitude, its irony, and its understanding of story and how we absorb stories and the effect they can have on us. Right. Um, it, it's all just up, totally up to date. Right. Things that took hundreds of years for writers to incorporate in a, in a sort of a math way. Exactly. You know. But it's true, like you were saying, made made a fiction. That whole second half, you know, this yeah, yeah, like yeah. whole whole like line of meta fiction. I found that super. Where he's fighting against the this false Don Quixote book, right. and it, and that's another sort of thing he wraps up. So hopefully he's like destroyed anyone's interest in this other book. Right. He even runs into even like creates a scene where there's a character from that book that Don Quixote and Sancho meet. Right. This guy says, oh, you're nothing like the other Don Quixote yeah. and Sancho, and I feel bad now that I'm written about in this book and that I went along oh, with that's them. That's right, that's right. Because you're so much better than them and so yeah. much more noble and etc. etc. Okay, so like you said at the end, you recanted his whole, yeah. his whole mission. I remember the first time I ran into you and uh-huh. I saw that you were reading the book. We talked briefly about it, and I was, I was thinking about this since writing into you and going back over all my marginalia. And just kind of like refreshing myself on it was this whole idea of like he recanted it, um, and you're talking about the irony that feels modern, where yeah. he's poking fun at the guy who thinks he's too affected by the books of chivalry and is mm-hmm. like running around and is delusional, but doesn't realize he's delusional. But if he's committed enough to the delusion, mm-hmm. is, is it okay? Like that whole yeah. that whole thing. Like you, you feel you feel like there are elements of it where. You think that's? You feel like that's the takeaway? And I was, I was joking about how my reading was like a little bit sussy. Like I was like, I was yeah. like, okay, yeah, he's delusional. Like look at all the stuff he's doing. And like, right. if we didn't have recourse to some type of like personal vision of right. like, ethics and, and you know, like that's the most individual thing you can do, and in, in, in which is good for everybody. Where if kind of like evolution is like heightened individuality and, and less adherence to like the monarch who decides yeah sure so like what, was there elements of 
but Don Quixote's whole outlook that like are potentially like uh, even if it's a little bit tongue in cheek, like you know, good or like like to be aspired towards, other than other than me not getting the whole point of the whole delusion is good. That's the thing that really struck struck me the most when I first began reading it, right? Because like you were saying earlier about having. Uh, maybe some trepidation before you take on a bit, uh, classic with such a massive reputation. Um, it, I feel like the reputation of Don Quixote has gotten away from Cervantes' intent because I feel like the Don Quixote we have in popular lore now right. is, it is one that's sympathetic and that we admire okay. his willingness to just believe um, in his fantasy version of himself and the world that he would rather be living in rather than the world he's stuck in. And I think that's enormously sympathetic. We can all relate to that urge. And we can admire someone who's so dedicated who's saying, well, I don't care if I don't live in the age of chivalry. I'm going to uh, behave and structure my life as if I do anyway. Right. Um, and Cervantes is, is very clear from the very beginning that he thinks this is completely ridiculous, dangerous, destructive, buffoonish. That for someone to live so completely in an illusion is a dangerous thing. Right. And he, you know, he satirizes it mercilessly. Right. Although you know there is some sympathy yeah. Yeah. with the character, but. Most of the time, it's very clear that he thinks that Don Quixote, in his every move, his every action, is acting at the best. He's acting like a complete moron. Right. But I think if there is a saving grace, like I think I was I was rereading like the intro in that version, that translation, like Bloom, Harold Bloom did a quick intro, and he was comparing like the disconnect with the reality principle of Don Quixote versus Hamlet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, right. Or something like I think it was, it was Hamlet. Hamlet. Yeah. It was Hamlet, and he was saying like um, uh, the difference was. Uh, uh, I'm probably gonna butcher it, but I think like they were concerned with themselves, whereas Don Quixote, his delusion, like like projected him with like uh, 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 impulse towards other people. Right. Right. Other right. People. It wasn't like a solipsistic. Like, exactly. You know right. what I'm saying? Right. So it's like you could say. Yeah, he's like acting out of like the accepted social norms in right. these different contexts, but he's also like, in the world and engaged with people. Right. Um, okay. And I think I think it, the second half, I think the second half does sort of complicate this idea or the or the intent I think of Cervantes. I think he del- deliberately complicates it a little bit because he does show this reaction once the first half of the book gets out there and people are reading it and they understand that there's this man out there behaving like a knight and acting in strict accordance with the rules of chivalry people find that amusing and they find it admirable and they want to bring him into their life because it makes their lives more exciting it's more entertaining boredom yeah. It's sort of, yeah, it's a relief to boredom. Just, yeah, yeah. And, and there, and so, and there's sort of like subtle layers of like mockery and admiration. And so people who run into him want to sort of use him for their own amusement, but at the same time they do have a, a, a sort of, but there's a warmth towards towards him. Um, there's not a 
I mean, it's not a mockery based in scorn. Yeah, it's a mockery based in sort of love and affection yeah. for this idea and, and, and how, how absurd it is. How yeah, absurd. And it, yeah, yeah, and there's an, an, a real enjoyment of that absurdity. There seems to be a need for absurdity in these people's lives, or a need to have a figure who, who embodies absurdity. Right, because the power structures in place on the time are so rigid. I mean, it like, seems like it. Yeah, they're responding now, to that rigidness. We have like a type of a type of governing system mm-hmm. that will, for the most part, secure our basic safety. Right. Um, but back then, it's like even with the way you think of like the ship, like if somebody wants to roll up on a horse and like do some stuff, that's not going to get as many times. Right, but then also if other people. Right, do, and then if like someone else on a horse isn't there, like no one's, there's no like cops to call. You know, <laughs> not conveniently like you're down the street. You know, <laughs> right, right, right. I, Justice, I think, takes a lot. I can see myself digging that like, myself in the hole by like, trying yeah. to make the argument that I'm trying to make but I'm also kind of making it in jazz but I also had the experience like when I was uh, reading Don Quixote in the beginning I was like I felt like um, and I also just read this book you know Alvaro Butis? Who? Alvaro Butis? Uh, I'm not familiar he, but he, I just finished his book um, Adventures and Misadventures on the Kroll and it's kind of like very Don Quixote like it won the Cervantes Prize mm-hmm. oh yeah it was translated by the translator really? When is this author writing? 2000. So he wrote these like five connected novellas over time. He's um, Colombian. Hmm. And then they published them all. You know, like the New York Review of Books? Yeah. It's one of those in 2000 or 2001. Um, is it all in one volume? It's or? all in one volume. Oh, that's nice. So I read it like that. And it was like six novellas. And it's very similar. It's like this guy, McCoy, except his kind of whole vibe is like um, he keeps, he keeps uh, committing to these different adventures that like are completely doomed from the start and he just keeps the quixotic classic quixotic right except like he's maybe more convinced of the fact that they're gonna fail <laughs> like that, oh yeah like that's you know but uh-huh. he just like doesn't and and i feel like with that book and then also when i first read Don Quixote, yeah i feel like there's kind of like a feeling in culture at least for me like sort of getting over this romanticization of like the guy who goes yeah. off on this adventure about right. like I, feel, I had that feeling of like kind of like seeing that recognizing that in myself but also being critical of it right. but then when I read Dr. Pokey there was like there was like a joy even though it was a satire there was a joy in like reveling in yeah, like, sure. the, the, the tomfoolery uh-huh. that sure. anyway so maybe that's sort of informing like how my reading is like a little bit like it can't just be a satire you know <laughs> like right well, I mean, yeah. it, satire is mm-hmm. the satirical element is the conceit, is like the device. Yes. But yes. The, and also he has a target explorer. for his satire, this large body of literature. Right. And that, that time, he thinks is just trash. It's right. just trashy literature. He's taking it down. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So and he also has fun with um, showing you how, if you actually lived your life according to these ideals that are... Um, that are so revered in this body of literature. How would it actually turn out in real life? It reminds me of the um, some guy who, who wrote a book about how he, I think, like for a year or something, he lived in strict accordance with the Christian Bible. You know, and so he like obeyed all these law, law and it was like com- completely contradictory, and his life was just impossible. But it's sort of like um, similar to what I think Cervantes is trying to do. Like, you know, chivalry never existed in this form that it's written about in these books and romanticized. 
and yet and it has such a powerful effect though on the readers uh, potentially so that they would get this misconception about some golden age that never existed and I think he's you know having a lot of fun because at that time that the medieval the medieval times yeah yeah those novels would be written because I I was also thinking about Parsifal uh-huh. last year after and there's that same trope of like the Dulcinea of like yeah is that her name like the the, the woman that you're gonna yeah. do there's obviously suspect elements to that, but like, there's also like a basic, I don't know, like, ethical framework that comes out of that at a time where it was not just a shit show, like, you know what I mean, right, right, right. where there were no rules and you could like go and take some shit from somebody if they yeah. wanted to. Which I wonder, is that, is there still, an, is, it, is it, like, obviously she's not even a real person, like in the first person in like in Dr. Yogi. Right. Or she is, but she's not a princess. She's just like, you she's know. She's a peasant yeah. girl yeah. who has no idea any of this is being done in her name. Yeah. It's not even her real name. But is there, is there anything to that trope that is more than just a mockery of an old form, do you think? Um, it's strange, but I mean, I think, um... I do think he's having fun with that as well, you know. Um, there, and I think he's um, he shows it more in the second half. He brings um, these ladies into the... There, there are several different groups of people who conspire to sort of play tricks on Don Quixote. One of them is a duchess who... One of her ladies-in-waiting. And they conspire to have her fall deeply in love with Don Quixote and want to give herself to him and um, of course he finds himself you know terrified of this young woman because he is in his mind dedicated to Dulcinea but I think it also shows that the idealization of a woman who doesn't exist is preferable to many men to and having to, to deal the with the reality. Having to deal with... <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's, uh-huh. that's a good thing. That's a good thing. What ends up happening with that? I remember that. She's like writing him letters right. maybe through a window or something. Well, what eventually happens is she thinks her death and then Don Quixote and Sancho are brought back to the castle and she's displayed like in, her, in a funeral, funereal way. And then they say, well, in order to bring her back from the underworld, uh, Sancho must be slapped in the face six times. Right. <laughs> and of course, Sancho wonders, he so many slaps. this has nothing to do with me. Why am I the one being slapped here? Right. And so he eventually is yeah. persuaded Right. And then she comes back to life. She is very upset with Don Quixote for all the trouble he's put her through because she won't, he won't uh, acknowledge her affection. That's right. That's right. Take her as his bride, and then he just and then he keeps. Didn't someone sneak into his room or something? Well, she tried. She tries and he like kicks her. Off. Yeah, uh, yeah. Because you know, he any any sign of like actual carnality or something. I like that take though. I like terrified. It's like the, the idealization. Like, yeah, it's much better to have it, you know, removed. Right. That's far right. Away. And we also have to remember that like Sancho is as much of a character that's like throughout this whole book. As oh yeah. And like. 
on uh, like I, I, I think when I was highlighting, I was like doing the things I was highlighting and, and Don Quixote has a lot of times where he's pushing Sancho to walk a certain distance or whatever. Mm-hmm. And Sancho's like, I'm so tired. Like, let's yeah. just sleep here. And he's always like, you sleep. Like, yeah. I will never sleep. And it's like kind of mania. Like, Absolutely. It's like something I really did <laughs> to as like a, you know, on and off insomnia. And like, I, the funny thing is, he's back always then, standing guard. As I was reading it, yeah. I was like highlighting. Okay. Like, yeah, totally, bro. You're locked in, you know. And then I was looking back, I was like, yeah, that was a, I don't know. It's, it's just such a fascinating way it pivots. Um, and I think the ending was also kind of, yeah, kind of like contributing to me being like, this is satire. <laughs> I mean, right. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, I was aware of that. Same thing with Alvaro Vizquel's way. Anyway. Yeah. It's funny, you mentioned this, and I'm thinking about how Don Quixote is basically an insomniac. He very yeah. rarely ever goes to sleep. Yeah. He will stand guard all yeah. night while yeah. all the other characters sleep. Exactly. And then it's only at the end where he does fall into a deep sleep. And when he, upon waking, his mind is finally clear. Right. I think there might be something to that. Oh, insomnia is a you can stave off waking up. Right. If you don't go to sleep, you know. Right. And it reminds me of that waking up to the reality. Exactly. And it reminds me of this that movie Bulwark. I don't know if you saw that Warren Beatty movie, where it's very similar to the story of Don Quixote in a way, because it's like this corrupt uh, senator who feels like his his life. He's lost all of his idealism over the years, and he's so sick of himself that he decides to commit suicide. But he can't do it himself, so he hires an assassin to kill him. But then, once he, he absorbs the idea that, okay, I, I paid the money, the, whole, the thing is set to go, I can't stop it from happening. He knows he, his mortality is right in front of him. That he sort of descends into this weird spiral. And he starts um, taking on this sort of different personality, where he just starts to blurt out the truth to everyone. All the time. And he starts to, um, at a certain point, his mania is so great that he starts just rapping. He speaks only in rap. What? And he, yeah, and people start paying attention to him. And he's like going on these these TV shows, talking about uh, telling the, the truths that no politician would ever dare to tell. And he becomes this sensation. And the whole time, you know, he's like, he, he never goes to sleep. He just keeps like taking these drugs to stay awake. Is it recent movie? It's from the 90s. Okay. It's this wonderful political satire. Interesting. The mania of that moment. Right, right. And when eventually he does finally um, fall asleep after many, many days of being awake. And once he comes out of that sleep, he's back to his old self. Yeah. And he loses the... Loses the power of first time. Right, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, maybe 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 a different reading of Don Quixote's madness is just like a case for <laughs> a depiction of intense sleep deprivation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because we've all been in that sort of stream of mind where we know if we go to sleep, we're going to lose that intensity, that sort of clarity of thought that we feel like we've achieved. Right. What about the other element of my skew reading where? I was reading it at a time when I was, I was uh, getting ready to relocate from a place, mm-hmm. and it was initially encouraging me. It was remind you know to like <laughs> commit to that like uh, re- re- to re- go back into that mode of kind of not having a plan and moving around right. and, and trying 
like did the did the did reading Don Quixote in the plague be uh, want to, to to travel and adventure or did it you or yeah, well, I think it's interesting because um, naturally any story where it's like we're going here, and then I fell, and then <laughs> right. woke up, you know, there's something. About there is, that. yeah, it's romantic. Um, although I think Cervantes satirizes that aspect as well, the sort of idea of going out on the road and looking for adventures, because the only ever encounter misadventures and like exactly. uh, the cold and the rain and right. hunger right. and thirst just ill, Ill preparation so it never yeah and I think it seems to me he deliberately wants to show the details that like several times throughout the book uh, Sancho will say something like you know we, we need to eat or we need right. to find some fresh water and then Don Quixote will say well Never in these stories of chivalry is right. it mentioned that the knight stopped to eat or to drink or to defecate or any of these bodily functions that are absolutely necessary right. to survive. Yeah. But they, you know, skip over that because yeah. that's not... It's like romanticized van life videos today. Right, right. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> you gotta, you're gonna have to poop somewhere about that. <laughs> Eventually. Um, yeah, yeah, you're gonna have yeah, to answer the call nature. Yeah. yeah, and that's also going against a lot of cultural narratives that came from the 60s or even until now of right. the solitary male or I don't, I don't mean gender but just like the solitary person uh-huh. going off and how that's freedom man like you know well that's really make- interesting because something you said earlier um, made me think of um, how to put this idea this idea of how this term quixotic has come down oh, yeah. through history and how it's used to describe that very sort of archetype, right? Right. And the person who's going out on a mission or going out on a, on a, on a, on a trip of some quest, kind, yeah. a quest yeah. that is probably doomed to fail right. or end badly. Um, but what's admirable about it is they do it anyway, That's right? Nice. That's yeah. why we're supposed to admire them. And I, and I, re- and I remember reading this um, film review by Pauline Kael. She was reviewing the film Easy Rider, yeah. which is like a classic example example of that and she was describing it in terms of at that point in the evolution of the counterculture of the late 60s she was saying it became hip to to young audiences to imagine that everything was rigged so uh the kukotic quest became uh, sort of a, a motif for them they latched onto it because they thought well no matter how um much integrity you have, no matter how pure your intentions are, you're gonna get screwed. You're, yeah, you're gonna be corrupted somehow, or you know, some, the man or whoever is gonna is gonna basically uh, shoot you down, like uh, what happens to those two guys in Easy Rider, you know. And so this it's sort of built into that narrative. And but and she was sort of trying to highlight the danger of that kind of line of thinking because it's sort of. Um, Fatalistic, yeah. and it can have you know consequences if you have just a generally sort of fatalistic attitude think, towards yeah. towards any endeavor. Right, right. It's so, very self defeating. Yeah, and then to always think there's some overseeing power. That's, that's very, that's a very, very, very much. Power. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, and I think now, yeah, maybe now. Now, in the past two years, it's not... Well, it's also romanticizing hopelessness and fatalistic... Right, exactly. But because, because even then, if you if you are... Um, even if you're sure yeah. that it's going to be like the man is like the system in right. place, there's still certainty. 
where yeah. you, 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 something's up there that is, is a thing that uh-huh. can identify. Maybe now, the idea of any, like, sane, even if malignant, overseeing mm-hmm. force, yeah, sure. it's kind of shot. It's just like, yeah. everything is a shit shot. Uh-huh. I, don't, I don't need to... Well, we can recognize, recognize there are these powerful forces, but you... Yeah, I think it is. Um, it's like very unreliable. It's very. But they, but they're, they're, they don't have it that much more together. Exactly. That's what you I'm know? gonna say. <laughs> and I think a lot of those, um, the '70s films that came out in the '70s sort of showed that. Like, um, take just the classic example of the Godfather films. You know, um, so Michael Corleone loses everything in the end. You know, yeah. and he is that malignant force. He is overtaken by the malignant force. He himself becomes a malignant power. But he, he, it all comes to a horrible end for him. Right. You know, and that sort of, in the 70s, the sort of that vision sort of played out and he showed how not only, you know, this, the system corrupts people, but I think it was influenced by, you know, Watergate and the fall of, and the exposure of, you know, the CIA and these, in these, uh, was the, the, the hearings that exposed a lot of their wrongdoing. So the system corruption was exposed and a lot of these uh, horrible actors fell from grace and they, they had to face consequences. So it wasn't just these, like, you know, pe- people who were trying to do right were, were then um, destroyed by the system, but the system uh, itself began to have these serious cracks and just sort of crumble. Everybody is equally at risk. Right, right, yeah, yeah. So to, to, to tell the story, or to, to, right, to, to just see the narrative as one of sort of self-defeating yeah, idealism. Yeah, it is. It's it is. Yeah, because it's like it's like the bad dad. Uh-huh. I mean, he's still he's still a dad. Like, yeah, there's no dad. Right. Exactly. I always yeah. need to analyze that thing, but I'm just saying. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's, yeah. I mean, it's the basic power dynamic, I guess. Right. Like, and all pretty. Yeah. So yeah. So that 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 that, that definition of the key, key, key exotic impulse is like yeah. you're saying it's a little bit even skewed and. And it's not as simple as the guy who goes and ventures in the last, even though he's, he's doing the fail. Right. Is the message of the book. Or, or his. That's not always. So I'm curious how that transformed, how that idea came about. Because it's very far, I think, from Cervantes' intentions. And anyone who reads the book, which is more a critique. Right. Of it's saying the, this is the, folly. The delusion. Yeah, it's showing. Yeah, and it's, and it's a response. And you should not. And right, exactly. Yeah. That's the thing you got to contextualize uh-huh. too. For us, it's like the whole book, but this is like before that. It was just a bunch of those books. Yeah. Like, what are they yeah. The chivalry. Yeah. 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 That's real. But it's interesting how it's how it's like a game of telephone, I guess. Like over centuries, the, in the popular magic, which I imagine. It's people who are coming to it secondhand who haven't exactly. actually read it. Exactly. The idea has become so different to me right. from the actual Don Quixote and the intent of Cervantes. But he also, the book. like, there are elements of there are also elements of the book that he that reflect real life experiences. Oh yeah, there's like getting second, caught by the more which are so autobiographical. Right. Yeah. So. Which I thought was fascinating to, to sort of lay that in there. That's something I think you really see in, like, Bologna. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, he'll take chunks of his life and sort of veil, with a sort of slight veil over right. him. Right. But it's, it's more or less accurate, yeah, pictures of what he, what happened to him. So then if he did all those things, it, yeah. It's also a person who's been through a lot of yes. travels and being in the military. Life. And, 
getting yeah. captured, yeah. And getting released, and he's looking back on this and he's saying, "This is where this idea of taking extreme can take right?" <laughs> he also well, did all this. Yeah, I mean, he was he fought <laughs> in one of the most historic <laughs> battles um, in his uh, right. most uh, uh, important battles in history. He was wounded to the point where he lost the use of one hand, right. and then he was captured by pirates, sold into slavery. That's right. Uh, spent many years, five years, in slavery, and you compare that, uh, the reality of going out and seeking adventures, which I'm imagining him as a young man, right. wanting to go out and see the world, join the military, right. you know, having some idealism, some romanticism of that life, and then the harsh, harsh reality. <laughs> harsh kickback. Right. And then being, to to you know, totally stripped of your illusion. Maybe that's the only way to get rid of those right. ideas. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> unless you read Don Quixote, maybe. Right, and then he'll, he'll, he'll help you work through that. He does it that. for you. Yeah. He takes all the L's and then lays them yeah. out for you. So like, but I think that also the, taking the form of satire is so much more effective Indeed. than if he was the proverbial, you know, father trying to explain, explain to you that's, why. That's yeah. why it's so good, because even if... Yeah, just like the playfulness. Yeah, you don't. Not everything needs to feel like an anecdote that has like, like I don't know, just like they gotta get up next morning. Yeah, they keep going. and They're gonna run into some more shit. And oh that, yeah, that itself drives them forward for me. Absolutely, like, I just it's so brisk. It's and such it, a brisk read. The, 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 the breaks also. Yeah. I think it's something I like in other other books that I find readable. It's, Little anecdote, mm -hmm. little anecdote. You know what I mean? Right. It's like the kind of um, longer. Well, well, yeah, it's sort of um, taking these snapshots of things. Yeah. And if a writer can do that, it's, to me, it's, you know, when you can be that succinct, where you can sort of explain these complex ideas or situations, but like sort of narrow them down into yeah. you know, little vignettes. So you've been in West for a long time. Uh, for about six years. I remember seeing you seven a lot years. before I moved away. Uh huh. Probably like five years or four years. Ago. Right, right. And then I've been California for like you're, you're in my head as one of like this like familiar uh -huh. you West know, Philly like from afar. <laughs> That's interesting. What um what brought you back here? Um. Just from California. Yeah, just like the familiarity of people oh, yeah? around here, and um, um, yeah, pretty much just like yeah, just like West Philly and um, Florida. Oh yeah, yeah. Where were you in California? I was in the Bay Area for I was living in Oakland for one year. Wow. And I also had some family that just moved away. I had my family was in Santa Cruz, and I was there for a little bit. Oh yeah. Oh, but, uh, that's nice too. Yes, yeah, yeah, but uh, but the yeah. Bay Area, man, yes, just terrible. What's been happening there? With just just how unlivable it is. Oh, I know, I know. That's that's a lot. I really think Philly is kind of. Unique. That's what's been happening too. And from where I moved from Seattle, okay. And I don't think I could move back there. It's, yeah. Yeah. Unless I wanted to live like really far outside the city, no, which yeah. I, I don't want to live in the suburbs. I was in a nebulous, like South Berkeley, North Oakland, Emeryville area, mm -hmm. East Bay, and um, no, I mean, we lived there for a year, and I was I couldn't. I don't want to make 
Oh yeah. But man, that's great. That's that's wild that you brought up the Wanya too. Because it's something that yeah, I really think you'd like the Alvarado too. The name is so familiar. I'm sure because I you know go on the your review books website and I. Yeah, you know, but all their books, books are, are really so, good. They all look so good. Yeah, too. they look so good too. It's like Just going to a candy in. store, yeah, you know. Exactly. And Nobody. so I look. Oh, and it's most of these people I've never heard of, which I think is so great that they're kind of executed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. People who sort of fall into and the same. It's the trans. It's, a, it's a feat of translation too. Yeah. Basically, with that book, it was like that translator. The fact that she did the same one kind of gave me a hit. Although perhaps after reading a really long book about. Like travel, you know, you know, I was like trying to mix it up. Like after that, you know, read something. <laughs> yes, different flavors. Yeah, yeah, word. Okay. Yeah. All right, well, shit. Um, damn. It's, it's strange how Don DeLillo seems to have a sort of. You're reading another Don. Perfect. 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 Like reading like. Uh, White Noise. I don't know if you read yeah. White Noise. Yeah. And just, that was written in 1984. And it's, uh, couldn't be more current. Yeah. You know? Yeah. The family he describes, the sort of, uh, modern family that's cobbled together from divorces and, yeah, um, previous marriages, and then just the, the media, how he represents it, and, uh, yeah. That his take on all these different that's aspects right. of, of, that's right. of American society. That's another element of Mao, too. I forgot there was like a photographer or something. Yeah. And that's an interesting way to explore like the media. Absolutely. And yeah, there's all these great discussions between different characters um, about current trends in society. And he's yeah. able to like microscope in on them and sort of get underneath them and sort of reveal. What does this say about us and where we're headed? That's a similar that's a similar thing too between Don Quixote and that Mao too book because like I remember reading it as like uh, along that similar vein where in one sense I was like kind of enamored by like the idea of this writer guy who yeah, sure. doesn't give a shit about anything else and just grinds and like, has people like bring him food and stuff. But then it was also a reclusive like, author. Yeah, but it's also like a horrifying Look into But yeah, the way he isolation. portrays it, it's not glamorous at all. Yeah. And the guy's, you know, full of self loathing and he just can't write a decent sentence anymore. It's like a it's almost like a sad <laughs> Oh yeah. And I wonder well. like how much of Don Lillo is in this? How much of this is like self critique? Exactly. This seems to give the guy a lot of his own attributes. Yeah. And I wonder if it's like oh this is my nightmare version of yeah. what would happen to That's me. how I read it. Thanks, man. Um, I appreciate you letting me record you. I'll, I'm going to put it on a little podcasting if that's okay. Yeah, that's, that's great. I can text it to you too if you want. And sure. if you don't like anything in it, you can just tell me and I'll take it out.